Hi, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events and Smartcast, our awesome new sponsors. Go check them out. When we talk about space, there's always this select few people that have fulfilled the dreams of so many kids around the world. Think about it for a second. How many children have woken up and said, I want to be an astronaut? Well, today on the show, Nicole Stott is an astronaut. She has done spacewalks. She's lived on the space station. And she's here to share her story about what it's like living in space, what's funny about space, what's fascinating about space, and what she learned so that she can actively try and impact Earth and solve the problems we have with the climate and other issues that are down here on terra firma. Come and enjoy this episode because she's a lovely lady, okay? You'll get a lot of benefit out of listening to her and watching her and uh, enjoy the experience of talking to one of a very, very, very small group of people on this planet. So Nicole, yeah. thank you for joining us on the show today. It's really important, really, that uh, I understand a bit more about you so that the audience can get a better understanding of the amazing experiences that you've had, which I suppose a lot of us kind of think we can imagine, but I'm sure the reality is much different to what we imagine. You know, as kids, many of them look out of the window and one day want to be an astronaut along with other great, amazing yeah. things, but most people don't make it there, do they? So. Give, give me right now, so that everyone watching and listening to this can understand it, give me a, a sense of what it must be like to be up there. Well, I think for one thing, you definitely develop a better understanding of the word awe. <laughs> you know, I think we use that word awesome all the time, you know, for so many different things. And it totally applies to that experience being in space. Everything, from, as you can imagine, from the floating and flying and kind of that liberated feeling of that to the view out the window and then to knowing, I think, that you're part of something that really is ultimately about improving life on Earth. I mean, that's a pretty incredible thing. But I would say to people, as you, as you introduce that, it's like, you know, I had my own imagination of what it was going to be like. And I had very high expectations of the whole experience. And I can tell you, you know, now I would say my expectations were probably here. And it's like, that was, you know, what it was. So, um, but I think that's true for a lot of things. When I was a kid, I lived in Nigeria, and people used to say to me, what's Nigeria like? Yeah. And I'm like, there aren't enough words to describe right. Nigeria in a way that you will get it. You just need to go there and see it, because once you go there and see it, you'll know exactly what it's like, <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll, have, we'll have kinship yeah. almost, because we've both been there. Um, is, it, is anyone able to explain it well enough to be able to make us feel enough what it actually is like? I, you know, I don't know, but I have, um, like I just had the chance to go to Antarctica, which again is another kind of um, yeah. extraordinary adventure kind of thing. And while I was there, I kept thinking, man, this is like so otherworldly. It kept, it had these parallels to what it was like to be in space. And then it made me think, you know, I can go in my own backyard and be in awe and be, experience the wonder of what exists around us. And I think in the end, that's really what being in space was like. It was, it's like it opened up my mind, my heart to being, you know, more aware to um, letting those things in. And I highly recommend 
you know, if you get the chance to go to space, please, please do it. But I don't think you have to go there to understand the, the feelings, the, the kind of the emotions that come from it. The, oh my gosh, we live on a planet kind of reality of who and where we are all in space together. And um, I don't know, but it is extraordinary. Did you, yeah. did you, did you eventually normalize it because you'd spent so much time up there? Did it become very regular and you were every day, you know, I suppose doing various science experiments and learning various stuff? Did it just become, after a while, my place of work? I think it became regular in that that's where I was, uh, you know, on this day-to-day -day basis at that point, but there was nothing regular about floating and flying and moving just effortlessly in three dimensions, you know, just gently touching you know, a surface and being able to push from one end of the space station to the other. And um, I, don't, I don't think you tire of that, of knowing that that's a very different experience and to appreciate it. And certainly the, the, to be in front of one of those windows looking out back at Earth. And I wondered actually when I got there, I'm like, oh, you know, being overwhelmed by it, you know, the first few times looking out the window, I thought, oh, am I gonna get to the point where I'm just gonna pull the shade down and watch the movie kind of thing. Never. Every single time there was something surprising and stunning and to the point of where during the day, during the workday, I actually had to set an alarm on my watch. If I went to the window during the workday, I knew that I would just be so like sucked into that view that we, it would be a 90 minute orbit of the planet and I'd be here in mission control and I'm going to call, you know, it's time to go back to work. So I would set, I'd set a timer for myself because it was just that immersive and transcendent and all of those kind of words you can imagine. The most, if I go back to being a kid, there was a TV show called Space 1999. Yeah. And that was the kind of first TV show I watched about space. I didn't have Star Trek so much in my radar. It was Space yeah. 1999. And I so want it to be like that. Is it, is it like that? Please tell me it's just like what I yes, watched exactly it. Like Excellent, that, no. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly like so. When you think about us on the planet and the damage that we're causing, the earth is heating up, we have problem with the icebergs melting, we have problems with food security, we have soil erosion, and that's just to start the journey. And there are some great things being done, by the way, okay, in that space. Do you think from your experience that most people are, are still either naive or in denial about problems that we're causing? Or, or do you think we've got a chance of turning things around? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I do think we have a chance of turning things around. Um, I think there was a lot of the naivety and the denial out there as well. But one of the things I think that was most impressive to me about going to space, first of all, that all of these countries come, you know, I was International Space Station timeframe, right? And which is still going on. I mean, for over 20 years, we've had this mechanical life support system in space that we've built to mimic as best we can what Earth does for us naturally, right? And we've had representatives from over 15 countries up there peacefully, successfully working together with the mission to improve life on Earth. I mean, we're out in space, but ultimately it's about improving life on Earth. And to be part of that, um, where I know it's seven people on a space station and maybe tens of thousands down here on Earth that are making all of that happen, and that it really is kind of this matter of scale, but I think 
it's just such a wonderful example of how we can come together to, to solve our most complex problems. I mean, it is a really complex thing to just get off the Earth, orbit the Earth, live and work there for a short period of time, get home safely, and yet we go there and we live together on this mechanical life support system, and we know every day, as a crew, okay, I gotta pay attention to how much CO2 is in my atmosphere, I gotta pay attention to how much clean drinking water I have, the integrity of my thin metal hull, the health and well-being of all my crewmates, just so I can survive there before ever doing any of the science that goes on. And so I think that's the, that's the parallel to me that's just such a wonderful example for us is that we have that going on right now. And if we just would learn like our most important role, like take on our most important role as crewmates instead of passengers here on Spaceship Earth, I think that, that's like that first step towards the solution. I was watching a documentary the other day about the HMS Duncan, which is the most advanced um, uh, warship in the Navy, in the mm -hmm. British Navy. And they were off to sea for seven months, 270 crew. And they were going off into unknown waters, into hostile waters and stuff like that. So the camera crew followed them. Um, and they followed the life of a few people on there, but one of them was the youngest member of crew. Yeah. So he was just a kid, yeah. So he got the worst place to sleep. He got you know, all, the, all the usual <laughs> stuff that you, you know about. And he said something that really kind of resonated with me. You know, they've, they've, they've got these missiles, they've got you know, the, the anti-aircraft this and all this wonderful stuff that they can do, you know, this, this, this <laughs> lethal machine, basically. And he said, it's interesting, you know, I'm part of this fantastic crew of people, but nobody on here decides anything, really, because it has to be decided by a politician in London. Hmm. And it just made me stop and think and... You know, we have a, a certain prime minister in our country at the moment, and whilst this is nothing to do with politics, um, we wonder, are these people capable of making the very best decisions so that the people on a, you know, yeah. a seven-month voyage at sea okay, are doing the right thing? And do you think that politics gets in the way of solving the problem sometimes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the human nature of it, right? Um, sadly. But I also think that politics helped us do what we're doing on the space station. And that one of the greatest gifts of that whole program is going to be the establishment of these international relationships that in space right now and through the programs down here on Earth are, have somehow transcended that. And, and I'm not sure what the secret sauce is that has allowed that to happen, but I really believe that because we have these positive relationships on this orbiting spacecraft, that a lot of the things that are going on right now here on Earth between those same countries that don't seem all that great are a lot better off than they would be if we didn't have that going on. So, um, and I don't know if there's some way that they've managed to bypass the politics in it and then it has its little trickle effect across what's happening here on Earth, but whatever it is, <laughs> Again, a really great example of how we can kind of get past that stuff. The population is going to grow and we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet eventually. How are you going to feed them? How do you feed them if we've got soil erosion problems? Okay, we don't have enough farmland to produce enough food for all of us to consume. Well, if we don't have a solution to that, we're in trouble. And I mean big trouble. And that's why I'm delighted to have a sponsor like Smartcast on the show, because they are actively working to solve this problem. 
by looking at vertical farming and food security. They are trying to create solutions that can produce fruits and vegetables, all types, to solve the problem of food security in the future. So go check them out, Smartcast Tech on Instagram. I think you find them there. They're doing some great work. You wrote a book. I did. You're here at the Emirates Festival of Literature. Yeah. So first of all, congratulations for writing a book. Thank you. Because well, I've written a book. It's not, it's not as easy it's as not people easy. Think. No. It's a slog. It you know? is. And yeah. you've got to focus and you, you, know, you have to keep going back to it, don't you? And then, mm -hmm. you, know, and then you talk to other people that have written books. They're like, why are you doing it that way? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I thought that was how I was supposed to do it. <coughs> and then you can watch too much on YouTube or Google too much. And then they tell you another way. So I kinda, I've got some empathy for it. What was, the, what was the journey like for you of, of putting that book together? Uh, how long did it take? And were you, were, were you in a stage of being really happy with the results and, and some, some form of editing or publisher yeah. coming back to you go, no, we don't like this, we don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, I think I was real, I, you know, really fortunate along the way. I really loved my editor with my publisher. I loved my book agent. I mean, they were all like really helpful along okay. the way. Um, I didn't know how I was going to do it at first. It actually was a, a couple years of just wondering if I really was going to do it. Oh. Um, I knew I had a story to tell, but I still, you know, initially hadn't quite worked out in my mind what the structure of it would be. Yeah. And I knew I didn't want to do the memoir. I didn't want to do the typical, um, here's how I became an astronaut thing and, and all of that. Not that that's not just so amazing, but... Um, <laughs> But I felt like there was more to the experience than that. And, um, and so I'm also very thankful for a woman that I had as a book coach, um, who I honestly don't think I would have gotten through the whole process okay. without her. And while she wasn't a ghostwriter um, or anything like that, the, just the skill she had, the talent to help me form the way I was going to put each chapter together and all of that was so helpful. And I would say from the time we um, started putting together this book, the book proposal, you know, that whole, that whole thing. I, I just thought, I mean, I'm so old, I guess. I thought you still typed up the manuscript, put a string around, then you dropped it on somebody's desk or something. But no, you have to write this thing that's basically the book that's not the book. Yeah. And then all of these things telling how wonderful you are and that it's going to sell and all, you know, and I'm like, what in the world? And so after we got done with that, which was, it, I would say probably the most painful thing about it to me, and then getting the publisher signed and all of that, because I definitely wanted to go the traditional route. Because I would not be here talking to you or have a book done if I decided to go the self-publishing route. It just never would have gotten done. And I don't think it would be the quality that it is. And I don't think I would have gotten to the point where I really formulated the story I wanted to tell. So a um, couple years probably worth of the fork in the eye. <laughs> But I'm, I'm happy. It's one of those things where we have all these sayings in the astronaut office and it's not just for us, but like the pleasure is the pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that one where in, you know, in hindsight now, I'm really so thankful for kind of the painful process I had to go through too, because I think it resulted in a better product. I'm reading a book at the moment by Johan Hari called Sto Stolen Focus. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the amount of time that we actually nowadays can focus at our desk or at home. Um, and you know, lockdown came and people thought they were gonna you know, read Tolstoy or they're gonna learn another language. He said, but you don't focus and you, you don't learn when you're in fear. And obviously through the period of the pandemic, yeah. people were in fear. Um, so 
for me, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm diagnosed as ADD anyway, so I, I'm starting on a, on a back foot. Yeah. So I, I really sense the challenge that goes into writing a book, taking the time, going back to it and getting that done. It requires a lot of concentration. You've got it put together, you've published it, so happy days, that's all good. Yeah. Okay, tell us what the book's about. So uh, it's a lot about what we were just talking about, really how we have um, somehow managed as an international community to put this place in space and do this work that's all about improving life on Earth. And it kind of tells a story in six, six, seven chapters? <laughs> seven chapters of these ways of, these ways of being, these ways of living um, as a crew on the space station. And, you know, everything from the, the understanding, you know, when you look at the Earth from space, there's no doubt that we're all living on one planet, right? That there's this, this sense of interconnectivity to all of it and, you know, the idea of how local really is global. Global is local. There's no difference in those things. Everything we do in one place influences the other. You know, these ideas of having to sometimes go slow to go fast. Um, living like crew, not passengers. You know, the, the details under the surface are sometimes the most important. And, and in the end, in whatever we're doing, we need to be making life better. And I think there's just examples of all of those things that come to us through the work on the space station. And they apply directly to the way we should be living down here on Earth. And, and in the book, um, through the, the encouragement of my publisher, we focused uh, primarily on, on climate change, on the, you know, the changing environment of our planet as an example of how we could apply these things to um, the way we live on Earth. And does that tie up much with the UN Global Sustainability Goals for 2030 and what their objectives are? Or are you, you not really aligned with that? It just happens that there's coincidental aspects to it. Yeah, I didn't deliberately say, you know, for the SDGs, this chapter is one through seven and this, you know, I, none of that. But I think that it absolutely applies because in that list of, of goals, every single one of them is associated with the other, right? And so to, to really achieve, you know, food, um, you know, what, what do we call it? Food uh, security, security yeah. or uh, reducing, you know, poverty around the world or water security, all of these things, they all tie together. Mm. And it all comes down to how we choose to behave, you know, in one way or the other. Yeah, it does, yeah. Um... When I, when I think about it, there's a, there's a lady that I interviewed that was on a documentary on Netflix called Losing Sight of Shore, where her and three other ladies rowed from San Francisco across the Pacific Ocean. Oh my gosh. And to, to Australia. They were eight months at sea. When they got to um, the equator, they got stuck in the doldrums. And so they were rowing mm. for two weeks and they didn't move anywhere. And... So we, 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 we did a bit of a school tour here and we were interested to yeah. learn of the kind of questions that the kids had. And so, so some, some keen questions that, that young people have about space, you'd have been asked many times before, I'm mm -hmm. sure. But one of, the, one of the questions that kept being asked by the kids is, where do you go to the toilet when you're rowing on a, on a, on a boat? I think for we're eight much months? better off on a space station than we would be in, in a boat rowing in the doldrums, yes. And so uh, her, her, answer, her answer was, well, it's, we call it bucket and chuck it, yeah? Mm -hmm. And the kids were like, well, really? Um, and then also yeah. the, the food situation. Is, is discussed a lot because they you know they have this freeze-dried food that they mm -hmm. have to have water to they they had four or five different choices 
and the four ladies had one that was their favourite. All the favourites? All the of same them. It their favourite, the yeah. And so obviously the start of the trip, everyone's great, aren't they? Because this is not bad. I could sharing, eat yeah. chicken curry or something. I don't know what it is. And then slowly it, then it ends up being the one that they like the least. And they said for the last two weeks we were eating stuff that we didn't want to eat and yeah. stuff like that. So when you go into space and, and you, you have to deal with the everyday realities of life along with everything else, that the food, does it taste of anything? Does it, does it, does it, is it, is it, apart from nourishing, which I'm sure it has to be, yeah. is, is it enjoyable as an experience? I thought so. I mean, I had my issues with the food for other reasons, because I think longer term, it's, you know, it's probably not the most nutritional, and um, there were things about it that I'd love to see changed, but I never went to a meal thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to find something that I'll enjoy eating. There was a really nice variety of food, because we can resupply from the ground. Um, you know, the cycle of that is quite nice. You're not getting stuck with just the cheese grits, which were not that good you know, <laughs> at the end. And not that that hasn't happened before. There's been problems with cargo vehicles, so they've had that happen before. But um, everything was really good. And because it's an international partnership up there, I mean, we had food from all the five different international space oh. agencies. So, and my favorite was the Japanese curries were absolute, I mean, they were delicious. And the Europeans had this, this chef do special things where we had this mushroom pate that was just basically ground up mushrooms and, and like hazelnuts and vanilla. It was so good. And, uh, you know, things like that, that, you know, from each of the countries, the breakfast every morning for me was, um, was this, uh, Russian kind of porridge stuff that had nuts and fruit in it. And yeah, so I never felt like the food wasn't good. Yeah, nice variety. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good to know. <laughs> there were things I didn't want to eat. Tell, you know, come on, what's but, the best thing we want to hear? There, was, what was, what there was the, were some, What you was know, the crummy stuff? Well, and I, I wasn't a vegetarian when I was um, on station then, but I still didn't eat a lot of the, the meat stuff because the texture uh, of, of the dehydrated meat was kind of a... You see the look on my face? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It was kind of a grainy thing. So for me, I didn't, if I could choose not to eat the beefsteak, <laughs> I didn't do that. Yeah. You got avoided that yeah, kind of stuff. I did, yeah. Tell me about Richard Branson. Tell me about Richard Branson. Well, I've only ever met him once. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and that was nice, very pleasant. Um, I, you know, so I don't know him in person as mm. really very well. I like what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've seen in the space world, I like it. I like um, the way, at least through what you see um, in the media of his stuff online, how he in, engages with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had quite a few friends who've spent time on Necker doing mm-hmm. you know, some of the sessions there and all have come back with positive, you know, nothing but positive things to say. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful there. Is it space? Know? Is it where he's going? Is it space? Yeah, is yeah it... you know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't. You know, what's a mile or two? I don't. I don't know. I just I wonder just, whether I, I wonder whether astronauts sit there and say, "Yeah, but that's not real space." I did real I, uh, space. You know? know, I don't feel that way. I'm kind of. I'm so hopeful for more and more people to have that experience uh-huh. if they want to. And um, and I think you know, there's the argument about the billionaires and all that stuff going on now. I'm like, you know what? It's going to take that for us to get to the point where. Mm it's more accessible. I I mean, I probably a hundred years ago couldn't have gotten on an airplane Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't have been able to afford it. And I just traveled here, you know, for 15 hours. And so, um, 
I'm, I, it gives me hope. I, I think that, uh, and I'm really excited. I know some of the people that have done those trips. And actually, my commander for my first space shuttle flight is one of their pilots, um, uh. CJ Sturkow. And so uh, excited to hear and see what he's doing with all of that. Yeah. So we've got, we've got this, this becoming more frequent, being more cost of, uh, accessible from a cost perspective. That's only going to come down as the years go by, whether mm -hmm. that's in my lifetime or my kids or my grandkids, I don't know, but that's only going to evolve as time goes by. And so I think it means exciting possibilities for all of us, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid first getting on an aeroplane, that was just an amazing experience. Yeah. And so, Still is to me, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, this, in this metal tube. And, and so these this situation that we're in with the world evolving and the places that we're going and the things that we can do. You know, Elon Musk says we're going to have to leave this planet at some point. We're going to have to go somewhere else. We're going to have to live somewhere else. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that uh, yeah. our grandchildren I will know. be getting on some form of vehicle or machine and going to another planet to go and set up I the know. rest of their lives? I am a Star Trek kid, so I, I, I do imagine that. And... And, you know, you mentioned Elon Musk saying we'll have to leave. I mean, I think, I think we are going to need to do that, even if it's just from the adventurer, explorer side of things. I think it's in us to do that. But, you know, going to Mars to me is not about abandoning Earth. You know, going to the moon, going to Mars, going interstellar someday. It's about, again, improving, protecting the, you know, the life support system. I mean, that we've been gifted here, I think. You know, you look at Mars. It's not saying, hey, come live the happy park lifestyle there. I mean, we are basically going to have to turn it into a spaceship in order to live there. And, um, and in the life cycle of Earth, you know, I don't know, billion, how many billions of years it is before the sun decides that, you know, we won't be a planet anymore. But when that happens, Mars isn't going to be the place to be either. We're going to have to be out, out of our solar system in order to, you know, extend humanity um, beyond Earth. So all these are those little steps, I think, to making sure that happens. Well, I just hope Darth Vader isn't there to have to face me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything Darth-like, we don't really want. Don't, like I don't Darth think. Vader. Yeah. Don't, don't be out there, Darth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Klingons. <laughs> yeah. Tell us the name of your book. It's Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. And how can people get it? They can get it from any of their favorite bookstores online or I believe in the bookstore as well. And you, if you want more information about it, you can go to my website, which is NicoleStott.com. Excellent stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to come and join us today. Absolutely. It's been good talking my pleasure. to you. It's great to yeah. get an insight. And uh, you, how many astronauts are there in the world? Oh, my gosh. I don't know right now. Probably probably a hundred and something with all of the international community. And then less in, in all of time, it's including like the suborbital flights that we've just had recently. I think it's like 602 or three right now. Six, so Total. you're one of 602, three people in the world out of seven and a half billion people that have done that. That's mm -hmm. a very fancy club, isn't it? And then how many yes. people have done a spacewalk? Oh my gosh, um, probably on the order of 60-ish. 60 people on this planet have done a <laughs> spacewalk and you're one of I them. I think, don't quote me on that number. <laughs> And you're sat here in a hotel in Dubai right Looking now. Looking like an old lady just sitting here. <laughs> Chilling yeah. out, telling me that you got a husband from the Isle of Man. Yep. Yep. Nicole, thanks yeah. very much for coming to join us My today on pleasure. the podcast. Thank it's been you. an absolute, absolute joy.
So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon. I want to go into space now. All I want to do is go into space. I want to go on a rocket. Do I want to go on a rocket? Do I want to go on a space shuttle? I don't know. But I want to go and experience it. Nicole just describes it so nicely and warmly. And okay, the food might not be amazing, but what was I expecting anyway? You know, <laughs> Gordon, Gordon Ramsay's not going to be up there when I get to the space station if I was to go to space sitting there with his kitchen laid out, making me my fabulous beef wellington or something. When you're in space, you get a chance to see the world differently. And hopefully you've enjoyed listening to Nicole's version of her experience up there, but also the work that she does to try and change things down here. Because we want our kids to have a better future. We want our grandkids to live on a planet that we protect. And whilst all is not lost, there's lots that needs to be done. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then please leave us a five-star rating. If you think it's worth five stars, if it's not, leave us four stars or three stars. But come on, leave us something. And if you're listening to this on any other podcasting platform, show us some love, leave us some comments, engage with us in some way. You're the community, you are the audience, and I want to serve you best. And I can't do that without your feedback. I'll see you on the next episode.